I was in toddlerhood the first time that I can remember being very judgmental toward my own physical self, toward my body. Welcome to Life, Love, and Family. Do you or maybe someone you know have a story of hurt, pain, maybe trauma? You know, someone who's on that dark road, that journey of an eating disorder? I've got great news for you. There's hope and there's healing. I want you to stay close. When confusion's my companion And despair holds me for ransom I will feel no fear I know that you are near When caught deep in the valley With chaos for my company Welcome into Life, Love, and Family. I'm Dr. Tim Clinton, President of the American Association of Christian Counselors and your host. Today we're going to talk about going through some tough times, maybe some real pain in your past, maybe some trauma. We're also going to talk about the dark road of battling an eating disorder. We've got a great personal story of hope and healing just for you. Our special guest today, Jenna Morrow. She's the alumni coordinator at Timberline Knowles. It's a residential treatment facility for women out of the Chicago, Illinois area. Jenna is a professional speaker. She's the author of the book, Hollow, published by Moody, which actually is her personal story of walking through an eating disorder and how God has led her to a special role where she gets to minister to women every day. She's traveled throughout the country sharing with clinicians and church leaders, especially youth workers, about the issue of eating disorders and women and teens in the church. Jenna has participated in panel discussions at various conferences and universities. She's shared her recovery story on broadcasts like Moody Midday Connection, Chris Fabry Live, and building relationships with Dr. Gary Chapman. Jenna, it's great to have you on Life, Love, and Family. Thank you, Tim. It's great to be here, and I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Eating disorders. A few years back, you'd hear stories, rumblings of it. But what's interesting is if you kind of dialed in on this subject, you realize that college campuses, even high schools, are starting to just explode with this challenge going on. A lot of families going through some tough times related to eating disorders. Are you seeing that, Jenna, in the work that you're doing? Oh, absolutely. I think historically we've known that addictive illnesses like eating disorders and straight-up substance abuse and drug addiction tend to hit vulnerable points in a person's timeline. And any transition is going to be a vulnerable point. And especially when a young person gets to college for the first time, I think that's an especially vulnerable point in a person's sort of life journey. It's usually the first time that they have felt sense of autonomy and being on their own and, you know, kind of having matters into their own hands and being out from under their, whether their parents' home or whoever they've been, you know, living with in high school. 
And so you've got the stress of life transition and change and, you know, impending adulthood and all of that. But then also you've got this newfound freedom. And college campuses, for this reason, can become sort of a hotbed for things like eating disorders when a person is maybe making a frantic bid for control, you know, and wanting to kind of take matters into their hands. And, you know, controlling food intake is a real kind of easy, symbolic way, and it's very sinister for a person to feel as though there's something they can control when maybe everything else seems a little bit precarious. You know, it's very concrete. So I think that's just one reason. And then also there's sort of a competitive aspect sometimes to eating disorders. And then also sometimes with things like bulimia, it's even sort of a a corporately acted out thing where girls will get together. I shouldn't say only girls, girls and, and young men will essentially binge in their dorm rooms, not calling it that, and then on their own sneak away and take care of it by purging. And so it depends on the language you use. Not everyone's going to say that we're you know, living out an eating disorder on a college campus, but essentially in many cases, that is what's happening. You're in a special role. God's placed you in a unique role now to minister to a lot of these women. But Jenna, let's go back. You also have a personal story, and I think that really endears people who are going through that tough time in their life to you. Do you mind just taking us back a few years and let us crawl kind of into your world, what it was like, how difficult, maybe even how terrifying it was? Yeah, you know, and it's funny, to, I mean, when you say crawl back a few years, I kind of, in my head, I'm going, oh my goodness, we have to crawl back to age three, actually, with me, as I've sort of looked back over my story, both in counseling and then just kind of on my own, realized that this, in me, took root very, very early. I truly was, I mean, I was, I was in toddlerhood the first time that I can remember being very judgmental toward my own physical self, toward my body. You know, that seems kind of strange that a toddler would even have that kind of consciousness of something like size and shape that just doesn't even make sense. I mean, our size and shape as a toddler is we're round. That's, you know, that's what toddlers are supposed to be. But I happened to be born into a family and grew up in a household where weight and appearance, and, but specifically weight, was a matter of everyday conversation. I had an older sister, six years older than myself, actually a half-sister, we share a father. She was with us on the weekends and in the summer probably around the time that I was born actually was a time when she was at that time considered to be, you know, a slightly overweight kid. I just remember that that was a topic of conversation in our home. And evidently, I was sort of, you know, absorbing these things that I was hearing. I came to understand pretty early, I mean, probably as early as understanding language, I came to understand that at least in our house, being fat was bad and being skinny, therefore, was good. This was not really a a conscious thing, but it was certainly something that I just kind of seemed to take in as truth. You know, I can remember being picked up at preschool and looking down and thinking that my thighs looked too big because they were squished out on the front seat of my mom's car when I was sitting there. And that day is kind of like a a breaking point to me, and it stands out very clearly. And it seemed like from that moment on, I, for a while, was just dissatisfied with my body. And then as I got a little older, you know, got into grade school, maybe first, second grade, I started understanding and kind of putting puzzle pieces together and going, okay, so if you don't like your body, you can change it by not eating as much or by moving a lot, you know, because I was always listening and watching other women. And this was the 80s when sort of the first wave of like the fitness craze in the 80s, because you had like the Jane Fonda stuff and jazzercise, and, and it was sort of part of the collective cultural consciousness at the time. So I kind of took all of that on and not realizing even that that wasn't just a normal way to be, not realizing that every first or second grader isn't hyper-conscious of everything she puts into her mouth. It just kind of continued to get worse throughout the years. When I was in fifth grade, I ended up breaking my leg and was kind of immobilized at home for a while and, you know, was in a full leg cast. And I remember overhearing my mom saying something like, oh, we need to be really careful now that she can't move as much. We need to make sure she doesn't get chubby. 
And that just terrified me. I was like, well, I, I know that's a bad thing. That was the first time I tried to uh, get rid of my food. I tried to make myself throw up and was not able to do it, which I think was by the grace of God, but at the time, very much to my frustration. And so I remember thinking, well, I guess I have to draw a line in the sand here, and I just I just won't eat. If I can't move, you know, and I, I can't throw up my food like my sister was doing at the time, I guess I better just not eat. That was around 11, 12, which, again, is kind of a transition point in a, in a person's timeline, so sort of a vulnerable spot. I was getting ready to go into puberty, which was terrifying. Part of what's inherent to puberty is growth, and in girls, it's, you know, the assimilation of more uh, more body fat naturally, um, which was very, very scary to me. So throughout junior high and then into high school, it just continued to be, you know, restricting my food intake and being hyper aware and hyper conscious and hyper vigilant about my food just kind of became part of who I was. And unfortunately, people around me didn't really see it as a problem. And I think that's partially because we just weren't as aware, even as a culture back then. Fast forward to age 18, and I go away to college. And for the first time, you know, it's all kind of in, in my hands. It's up to me what I want to do and how I want to eat. And one of the things we needed to do on campus was fill out some paperwork so that we could get our food from the dining hall. And I got into my head, well, if I just don't fill out the paperwork, then I won't be able to get food. And then I won't have the temptation to eat anything because it won't be an option. I'm not all that stupid, really. But the idea of I just, you know, won't need food to live somehow didn't enter into me. I felt really kind of like I was the exception to that rule. And I really believed that I'd be fine if I didn't eat. I began doing, you know, just really kind of crazy things. I would go to the store that was around the corner from campus and stock up on like jars of baby food and figure, well, that's a meal, you know, for a baby, that's a meal. So surely that's a meal for me. And not even realizing how bizarre that was and that people like my roommate and my college friends were like, that's really strange. You know, realize that's strange. All I cared about was that it was accomplishing what I wanted it to. Really, by the time I got to college, things took a, a deep nosedive. As soon as I got on campus, it took about two months and I lost 40 pounds, which is not only a extremely fast rate, but also I didn't have it to lose. I arrived at campus and I was not overweight. And so that put me in a very unsafe place physically. And that was when people around me, professors, uh, I was a music major. And so my, my directors, my ensembles and my teachers were pulling me aside and going, what's going on? You know, you, you came here as one person and suddenly you're a shell of yourself. What can we do? How can we help? And so I'm grateful for that, looking back, that they were willing to do that. Um, at the time, I just said everyone was being very dramatic. It eventually came to a point before I even completed my freshman year that I was asked to basically step away from school. Um, I was a liability. I was passing out in class. You know, it was dangerous for me to be driving on campus. People were just alarmed by me, and I had no idea, completely blinded to um, what I was presenting to the world around me. And eventually was started seeing a counselor outpatient as a college student. And then she kind of helped as long as she could and had me working with a dietitian, you know, who I was basically lying to because I was desperate to keep doing what I was doing. And yet also I didn't want anyone to be mad at me. And so I was trying to sort of play both sides and look like I was working on things when truly I had no intention of it. And then eventually the day came maybe, I don't know, six or eight months into outpatient treatment. And my counselor at the time said to me, you know, you really need to go someplace. This is beyond me and, and you're in danger. And quite honestly, I kind of don't remember what happened next, which is, you know, my memory of all of this time is pretty spotty. I do know that within a couple days, I had a phone intake with Ramuda Ranch at the time, which, you know, back then was kind of the spot for residential treatment for eating disorders. And it happened to be, you know, in the middle of this desert in Arizona. 
I thought, how strange that that's the only place there is. So I ended up there, and um, the treatment world, I think, works a little differently back then, too. But I ended up being, between their residential and their partial program, I was there for a full year. So you would think, you know, what an opportunity, my goodness, to get a year to work on your eating disorder. Surely, you know, you're great. And sadly, I think I arrived thinking it was going to fix me. And then when it didn't quite happen that way, and it was harder than I thought it would be, and letting go of what I had grabbed onto as my control was so much harder than I thought it would be. And then I just became discouraged and I became desperate to get out and get it back and kind of jump back into the world of sickness that had been comforting to me. My goodness, I don't, I, the cost, I hesitate to even calculate at the time because insurance ran out early on and then it was kind of like, well, we'll put you on a payment plan. And they were very kind to do that. But the guilt that I had because I knew that I'd already decided, it was a very conscious decision, I had decided that I don't want recovery. I left treatment and about six weeks out of treatment had relapsed and lost the same 40 pounds that had been put back on me in treatment. And it's interesting, though, because I tell people now that, so that would look like a failed treatment effort, I suppose. But looking back now, I am able to see that the things I learned in that year there, not only did it save my life, it was very much a stopgap measure to save my life physically, but also the tools that I was given, even though I rejected them at the time, especially the the spiritual tools um, and the spiritual truth that was kind of imparted into me, I took hold of it. I just wasn't ready to use it. But as I gradually came to become more and more curious about a life without these crazy obsessive, you know, thoughts and compulsions and a life outside of the prison that my eating disorder had become, then I think I went back and I called upon the things that were taught to me during that year. So it actually was not a failed treatment attempt. I'm just a kind of a slow learner, I think, and you know, a little bit of a delayed reaction. Jenna, that's an amazing story. I wanted to just step back for a moment because I, I have a feeling that there's some people listening and they may be up against this challenge. I want you to help us understand, like body perception issues, that a girl, for example, who's battling with uh, anorexia, maybe even bulimia, can actually look into a mirror and she doesn't see herself. It doesn't matter what she weighs or how thin she is. Her body perception is off. And you're sitting there thinking, you look really skinny. I'm terrified for you. But when she looks in the mirror, what does she see, Jenna? Yeah, and that is, oh my goodness, that's a complicated issue. The best way I can describe it to someone who hasn't been there is that it's really kind of like being in a house of funhouse mirrors, especially the ones where some of them distort you one way and some distort you another way, and you're unsure which one's really you. There's all sorts of brain science behind it with goofy, I mean, to get really scientific into it, you can, which is I suppose kind of fascinating, but also probably over the heads of a lot of the people listening right now. But it's sort of like as a person starts embarking on, you know, whichever eating disorder behavior it is, restricting, binging, purging, whichever, especially if they begin to drop weight very quickly, it's almost like the brain doesn't catch up. Like I lost 40 pounds so quickly that I continue to see uh, the first person. I continue to, to look in the mirror and see, you know, a girl who was a size six, size eight. But I mean, two months went by and I was a size two says zero and everyone around me was going, what's going on? You're gray. You know, you look terrible. It's like my brain hadn't caught up. I still saw the first image. I would have moments of clarity where I would kind of catch, it was interesting because usually it was because I would catch a glimpse of myself like in a storefront window or in a mirror I didn't realize was there or something. And I would think, oh my goodness, that girl's thin. I wish I looked like her. And then I'd realize it was me, which you would think that that would be like, oh, well, that should show you that you were distorted. As, As soon as I realized it was me, then the image would kind of flip. And I was, oh. Hard for people to understand, but a, a real 
challenge for yeah. these young women. It's the second issue I wanted to bring up, the struggle for control. Maybe in the cases of anorexia in particular, the strive for perfectionism and how that it seems like the only thing you can control really is your food intake. When you really dial back your life, it's the only thing you really have control over. And Jenna, the thing that you control now in your life actually then turns and becomes the issue that starts controlling you. You just don't realize it. Right. For the longest time, I rejected that whole notion. No, 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 it's not about control at all. And in fact, it very much was and is. But at the time, it's not something that I would be like, well, if I can just do this, then I'll feel like I'm in control of my world. The rationale behind it was almost completely hidden from me. I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing. All I knew was that if I was threatened with the idea of not being able to do it anymore, I would panic. It wasn't even like it was a very enjoyable thing or a fulfilling thing. I mean, there was no positive connotation to it. It just felt like something I needed to do. And as soon as someone mentioned maybe not doing it, then I would just tighten my grip on those behaviors all the more. And I think it just maybe comes down to being something that's very concrete. You know, I mean, other things where I was, like you said, mentioned being in college, I'm looking at my future going, is this really what I want to do? I don't know. Do I even have the talent that people think I do? Maybe I don't. Maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm an imposter. Maybe all of this. Things that are very kind of intangible and thinking about the future and feeling it was all just too big for me. Nothing I could do about it right now. There's nothing I could do about a lot of things right then. But restricting food intake and then watching what happens pretty quickly on my body or at least being able to see the number dropping, even though I couldn't physically see it with my eyes, I could see that number dropping. And so the numbers became very, very powerful. I want to talk also about the obsessions or compulsions. You mentioned it as you were telling your story. I was working with, believe it or not, a young man who was struggling with anorexia. He was heavy as a young teenage boy complicated relationship with dad, mom dressed him up as Wonder Woman, believe it or not, taking him trick-or-treating and stuff. He, from that moment, flipped a switch. I mean flipped a switch, started exercising. He was like over 200. He got himself down into the teens, okay, under 120 and spinning, just totally spinning, but exercising six plus hours a day, running six plus miles, doing push-ups, sit-ups. But there was an obsession also that was unique. He would weigh himself almost plus 50 times a day. Oh, my goodness. He couldn't stop. And the battle at home that raged was they were trying to shove food in front of him all the time. And it was just nothing but war. But he would describe the fact that there was something going on, something triggered inside of his mind. And he couldn't stop. He said, Tim, I just couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, as far as the weighing, it's now it's almost a little bit silly to me. But, you know, I've had throughout the years, especially after treatment, then when I was in relapse, my thought health outpatient again. I've had counselors who've said, you know, forbidden me to have a scale or taken my scale away. And I'm not typically this kind of a rebellious person. Like in my everyday waking life, I would say I'm really not. But the first thing I would think was, okay, well, stores have scales. You know, I mean, I would weigh myself in the hardware store. I would, wherever there's a scale, I'd go there. So it's kind of like, whatever you do, I will rise above it. Almost like it won't, it won't be beaten out of me. It won't be beaten down. And so that becomes tricky, especially when it goes so against what a person's nature might be. Um, And now when I work with people now who describe things like, you know, eating disorders and addictions, and we look at their character and we look at their temperament and their natural God-given personality, and we see the ways that their disorders take them out of those things and make them act so contrary to their values. And sometimes talking about that creates enough of a conflict for a person to go, okay, maybe there's a part of me that doesn't want this. Because it's not fun to be that divided against yourself, and yet it does seem to take on a life of its own. I'm sure he didn't put out and say, I'm going to weigh myself 50 times today because that's a good use of my time. 
You know, it's, it doesn't work that way. No, you end up doing no. it going, why am I doing this? Talk to us a little bit also about family dynamics and how complicated they get, which only seem to exacerbate this whole process. And usually, unfortunately, usually a lot of times family dynamics in the situation with an eating disorder have already been a little bit complicated in one way or another, which was certainly the case with my family. Um, I came from a home where I had a, basically it was a, a, an angry, abusive father for the most part, and then a scared, abused mother. And so I watched that kind of play out. And, you know, that isn't always the case with an eating disorder, but there always seems to be some sort of perfect storm, I think, brewing at home where things aren't necessarily idyllic or they appear to be idyllic. And then the person who's suffering is the only one who knows that isn't true. And so things tend to already be complicated in the family dynamic. And then you take somebody who then takes on something as maddening as an eating disorder. And I think one of two things happen. Either that person then becomes a great distraction from the family, from the rest of their drama. And so it's almost kind of like, you know, lobbing a fireball stage left and everyone chases after it. And it's like, well, great. Now we gave the family something to focus on. Uh, At least they're all on the same page. You know, I've seen that happen. I've also seen it happen where then it just takes the family and blows it into utter chaos because now maybe a family who had maintained a sort of a status quo of, everyone's all good, and now suddenly you've got someone who's deteriorating, which then tends to um, illuminate the fact that maybe the family isn't doing great. Um, And so sometimes then it just explodes into chaos, which is almost like I've seen, you know, girls with eating disorders that that we treat, and they'll kind of be like, well, at least now the outside matches the inside. You know, like they'd felt that internal chaos already, but now that the family was in chaos, they're kind of like, well, at least I'm not alone with it, (laughs) you know. It certainly can tear a family apart, and I can only imagine. I'm a parent, and I'm trying to imagine now, like, what it would have been like to have been my parent when I was so bent on self-destruction. And it's hard for me to even wrap my mind around it. It really is. And so it's important, I think, for treatment professionals to come alongside families as well, because very often there's all kinds of breakdown that's happening. And it's not only the sufferer, his or herself, that needs to be addressed, but the entire family system. It does become a lot more complicated than than just getting a person to eat properly. Our special guest today is Jenna Morrow. She is the alumni coordinator at a residential treatment facility, Timberline Knowles, great friends of ours here at the American Association of Christian Counselors and Life, Love, and Family. She is in a unique role where she gets to minister to these women with passion and the love of Christ and more. There's hope and there's healing. There's certainly been a wonderful story in your life. And this story of what you get to do every day there at Timberline Knowles, can you encourage those who are listening right now who may be just really struggling? They're terrified about their daughter. They're just overwhelmed with the battle they're in. Give them some hope. Sure. Well, I mean, I'm in a unique position with what I get to do. I mean, sure, I work in a treatment center, but I also, I'm the one person there who doesn't have to say goodbye to people. Being the alumni coordinator, when they leave treatment, I get to stay in touch. I get to follow their life. I get to see, you know, if they choose to stay in touch with me, I get to see what comes out of their life later. And so, You know, earlier I mentioned that when I went to treatment, I was given tools and didn't kind of employ them right away. But later I did as I decided to grab onto recovery and make it my own. And I see that now, too. That's what I tell people now. I met with a woman yesterday on our campus who was just feeling like she was the exception to every rule. She was never going to be able to recover, never going to be able to get better. She said, I've been in treatment XYZ amount of time and I should be better and I'm not. And I was able to tell her with complete integrity and honesty in my heart that, I believe there will come a day when I'm going to hear from her as well and hear um, what has come about. My point is eating disorders tend to have a very slowly unraveling uh, recovery process. I've never seen yet a quick fix. However, when a person really does take hold of the tools of recovery and puts them in her backpack and learns different ways to cope and begins to 
trust yourself around food again and begins to let people in who will tell the truth about herself and love her, then uh, there absolutely is hope. And, you know, we come back to the biblical truth that there's nothing impossible with God and ultimately surrendering the control that we thought we had through an eating disorder is the most empowering act we can commit, you know, laying it down. When we empty our hands of whatever we've been using to control things, we open our hands for God to put into them what we truly need, which is, you know, ultimately more of himself. So I do get to see every day people's lives flourishing in due time, in God's time, and as they're able to surrender, I see people's lives flourishing, and people do get free. Freedom is a very real possibility, and it's there for the taking and there for the asking. And it's all about comprehensive kind of collaborative care. I want you to hear me, mom, dad, families who are out there who are in a journey. It is about getting medical direction. It's about nutritional. It's about understanding the emotional issues that are there, surrounding her, the entire family with a support system that truly gets it, who've journeyed there, who can bring this story of hope and weave it into your hearts. Most importantly, we all know this, that without Christ, there is no real hope. We anchor ourselves in Him. He's the one who sees us through. Jenna, what a great story. Thanks for being a part of Life, Love, and Family, and for the team that you guys have out there, Timberline, Knowles, and more. And we pray God's clear leading and direction on all you guys continue to do. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Our special guest again today has been Jenna Morrow. She's the alumni coordinator at the Timberline Knowles Treatment Facility for Women. Fantastic friends, but man, she has a great story. Chesterson once said this, that we're destined to misunderstand the story that we find ourselves in. We can get lost, confused. You know what? God's the author of our story. And what we're trying to do is to anchor you, to push you into His hope, His strength along the way. If you or someone you love are struggling with an eating disorder, you'd love to learn more about Jenna Morrow. Her personal story uh, is in a book called Hollow, and she also has written a recovery devotional for those who are part of that hollow journey. To learn more about Jenna and Timberline Knowles and their ministry, visit us at lifeloveandfamily.net. That's lifeloveandfamily.net, or call us toll-free, 855 455 3264. That number again, 
3264. I'm Dr. Tim Clinton for Life, Love, and Family. Thanks for listening. Life, Love, and Family. Women in Depression, get confidential help. 1-877-257-9612. Women addicted to alcohol or drugs, get confidential help. 1-877-257-9612. Women with anxiety or eating disorders, trauma, and PTSD, get confidential help. Timberline Knowles Residential Treatment Center. 1-877-257-9612 or timberlineknowles.com.